0: We've been spending the last number of Sunday evenings talking about the doctrine of God. Doctrine is just a theological term for teaching. The teachings about God. And rather than a, a more typical study looking at God's attributes, we're looking at how God works, how He acts. We started off with a God who creates. And just seeing the amazing power of God that through His Word, that he has the authority and the power to speak things into existence. This is incredible authority. You know, we were talking this afternoon about people who are, who are struggling to believe evolution versus creation, and we believe in a God who, with His Word, raises the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He's going to come back in a glorious, spectacular fashion, usher in new heavens and new earth, instantaneously through His power. He also spoke this world into existence. Such power, such authority. Then we looked at a God who decrees. Meaning that God has counsels. He has plans. He has purposes. That he has ordered before time began. We looked at a number of verses, looked about God's decree. His His counsel and his purposes will stand. And he has counseled and he has purposed things before the foundation of the world. And he knows things. Not because God has looked through the corridors of time and saw what might happen. No, God doesn't learn anything. God cannot learn. He knows everything. Rather, his knowledge proceeds from his decree. God knows things because he's decreed them to exist. As we looked at the miraculous and authority of God's decree. And now we're going to look at tonight, starting to look at God who upholds. Now, there is so many verses that talk about God's great decree and then how he carries out his decree as a God who upholds. What I mean by upholds is that God is working in his creation to bring it to its intended purpose, purpose and end. That God hasn't just spun up this world and given its preconditions and, and letting it kind of play its course. Rather, God is active, upholding his creation, ensuring that it proceeds exactly exactly as he has decreed it to proceed. We have a theological term called providence, what we mean by this act of God upholding the universe. Okay, he didn't just create the laws of nature, but rather God upholds the law of nature. He's the first cause and he also upholds, he governs all secondary causes. And we're going to see that through scripture. And it's going to take us a while because there's so many scriptures that talk about God's providence, God upholding this universe so it's going to take us at least two weeks, maybe more, to look at this doctrine of God's providence. I want to start by looking tonight at this, defining what we mean by a God who upholds the universe, by looking at Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. The scriptures read, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The same powerful word that has brought this universe into existence is the same word and the same power that sustains it, that upholds it, that keeps it existing. Colossians 1, 15 to 17 says this, talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together." If God was not sustaining and upholding this universe, it would not exist. God's hand has not only, God's word has not only spoken this universe into being, God's word sustains, upholds, preserves this universe, and it's being directed, not impersonally, but personally to his intended end. This is historic belief. The Westminster Confession and later Lady the London Baptist Confession says this, God, the good creator of all things, In his infinite power and wisdom doth uphold, direct, dispose and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for the which they were created according unto his infallible knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. To the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness and mercy. That's why we're talking about a God who here creates. And a God who decrees. And now a God who upholds. This is a progression describing how God has worked in creation and how he's working even now. And so we're going to get into discussing these all things. Because this confession affirms that God governs all creatures and all things. Now, we, when we discuss this, we can get into some controversial waters. There's a popular opinion today that God has created and he, and he upholds the properties of nature. He upholds the laws of gravity and the laws of logic and the laws that govern our universe. But he is not, in fact, directly involved in these secondary causes. If God was involved in every single detail and aspect of this universe, then how can we escape the charge of fatalism? How can we escape the charge that we are just robots? How can we not level God with being the author of sin if he is really upholding every single action and molecule in this universe? Can we see evil and suffering all the time? How can someone be held accountable? And how can God not be? We looked at that briefly last week, but we're going to have to continue to Look at that objection because it's certainly going to come up as we look about God's look at God's providence. What I want to do tonight is before we look at any of those objections, and if, you, if those objections are burning in your mind, I would encourage you to listen to last week's sermon, but what I want to do here tonight is clearly demonstrate, before looking at any objections, is what the scriptures say. There's a verse after verse after verse after verse after passage after passage that talk about God upholding and God governing every single thing in the universe. From the biggest events in history to the smallest of details, God upholds and directs all things to His intended ends and purposes. Okay, there's going to be an avalanche of data over the next few weeks. And 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 some... some who are critical to this doctrine of providence, might be able to dodge one or two of those rocks that are falling at them, but there's no way they can avoid this avalanche of biblical data that is flowing. We have to affirm what the scriptures affirm, that God is in control of every single detail and aspect of this universe. What we're going to look at tonight is two things about... God's providential control and his governing, his upholding of the universe. The first one you have on your sheet is God's effective control. God's control is effective. And what I mean by that, we looked at his decree last time. We saw that God had a purpose, a plan, he had a counsel and he had will and that will was effective. God accomplishes what he sets out to do. And God ensures that he governs all things so that they do accomplish what he sets out to do. God is not impotent. God does not fail. God is going to accomplish his purposes. Yes, we can resist God. Creatures can resist God for a time, but we will not ever thwart God's plans or purposes. We cannot. God is not a God who is going to fail or accept defeat. Now, there'll be times in scripture, it looks like, well, it looks like God has been defeated. Look at the cross of Christ. It looks like, it looks like the forces of evil had, had won the victory by crucifying the Messiah. But no, that was all part of God's plan to accomplish it just that way. So seeming defeat was actually victor- a, a victory and a glorious one at that. So let's look at God's effective control of this universe. Look at Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven: Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Isaiah 14, 24 to 27, the Lord of hosts has sworn as I have planned it, so shall it be as, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand that I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that I purpose concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purpose. And who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. And who will turn it back? When God has purpose to do something, can anyone stop God's purpose? No. No. Nothing can stop God. He has purposed. He has planned. And so shall it be. Isaiah 55 Starting in verse 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I have sent it. God's control is effective. God's purposes are effective. Proverbs twenty one thirty No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Isaiah forty six, starting verse nine, I am God, and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, and the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. And I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God's control is effective. He's decreed. He has a purpose. He has a plan. It is going to be carried out. And God is going to ensure it's carried out through his providential control. Daniel 4, 35. This is Nebuchadnezzar. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as Nothing. And he does, speaking of God, he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can say those things to God. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work. Of your hand, we see many times that analogy of the potter and clay, referring to us as creatures and God as God. A few more here: Psalm thirty-three, eleven. Again, looking at God's effective control his effective purposes. Psalm thirty-three, eleven: The counsel of the Lord stands forever; the plans of his heart to all generations. One fifteen three: Our God is in the heavens; he does all that he pleases. One thirty-five six. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Isaiah forty three thirteen. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. And then Revelation 3, 7. The words of the Holy One, the true one. Who has the key of David? Who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens. Powerful. God has all power, all authority, and his purposes are effective. God's will is never thwarted. God accomplishes his purpose. What he sets out to do, what he has decreed, when he says he has decreed the end from the beginning, it will happen exactly as God has purposed it. He will ensure it. His purpose shall stand. His governance of this universe is effective. These verses here are what we mean by God's sovereignty. That he sits in the heavens and he does as he pleases. And he has all authority, supreme authority. There is no one like him. There is no equal. There is no counsel that he turns to. He accomplishes his will. That's all we mean by God's sovereignty. He's free to do as he pleases. And he does what he pleases. He has not only the will, but he has the wisdom and the power to accomplish his good purposes. Good purposes. Now, we're going to dig into scriptures here to understand what it means by all things. We're going to see that not one particle of dust or molecule or quark or the smallest subatomic particle you can think of is outside of God's will or his purpose. But rather, everything is upheld by God's sovereign hands. That's what we're going to look at next. God's universal control. Okay, on your sheet there, next one. God's universal control. Now there's a number of things we're going to look at starting tonight and into next week about how God controls everything in the universe. Not only does God know every detail of the universe, its laws, its principles, its people, not only does he know the names of the billions upon billions of stars. Not only does he know the very hairs that are on our head, an incredible knowledge. But God not only has created all these things, not only does he know all these things, but he sustains them and upholds them and is directing them to his intended purposes. Okay, I want you to pay attention as we go through these things. And I want you to notice that these are things God does. Okay, This, this is not just something that God has set in motion. We talk about God governing creation. We talk about the thunder and the lightning and the rain. This is not just, God has not just created the science and the laws behind it, but rather look how it describes that God is actually governing these things. He's acting in these forces of nature. He actually makes them happen. the very first one I want to show you about God's universal control. Number one, God upholds all creation. Okay, God upholds all creation. Psalm 65, starting in verse nine. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, setting its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. Psalm 104, 14. You cause the grass to grow. Okay, God does that. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. God is active in these secondary causes. Psalm one 27 four, twenty-seven, twenty-nine. 29. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Speaking about animals, how God is completely in control of all animal life on this planet, giving them life and also returning them to the dust by taking away their breath. Psalm 135, verse seven and 25. It says, "'He it is who makes the clouds rise "'at the end of the earth, "'who makes lightnings for the rain "'and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. "'He who gives food to all flesh, "'for his steadfast love endures forever.'" God is behind all of those things. God acts to govern and sustain and uphold his creation. Psalm 145, 15. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. In Matthew five forty five, where he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God makes the sun rise. God sends rain. God does that. Okay, how can we have confidence the sun is going to rise tomorrow? Because God is there. He's still living and he's upholding and sustaining this universe. Matthew six, twenty six. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? God, okay, I don't need to provide any commentary in these verses. It's clear. God is acting in his creation. He's upholding his creation. We see a rainfall. That's God. He has brought the rain. We see snowfall. That is God. God has brought the snow. The sun has risen. God has caused that sun to rise. And that's not denying that God uses secondary causes. We see the same thing as we send the gospel, go forth. People believe the gospel. In order for someone to be saved, they must hear and believe the gospel. And how are they going to hear and believe unless a preacher or someone tells them? Okay, God uses people to accomplish His purposes. He also uses the laws of nature to accomplish his purposes. But God is upholding and sustaining all of those things. He is active. He's not <clears throat> passive. He's not just impersonal. God is personally behind the rising of the sun and the giving of rain and the feeding of the animals and giving them life and taking their life from them. God is governing all of that. He sends frost and he sends ice and then he melts it as well. God controls everything about his creation. The second one we're going to look at is that God directs creation for his purposes. God directs creation for his purposes. not only does he uphold and sustain this creation so it continues to function in the way that we expect and the way that we experience. not only is God behind that but God is directing creation for his purpose. This is not just a naturalistically run universe, but rather it's miraculously run. God's personal hand is behind even nature. Look at Job 37, starting in verse six. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise, the downpour, his mighty downpour, he seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given. And the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance. To accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the inhabitable world. This is what he says in verse 13. What is God accomplishing by controlling the weather? He says, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. God is being gracious by controlling the wind and the weather and the rain and the storms and the lightnings. He has a purpose behind these things. This is not just blind, naturalistic causes. God is orchestrating even the weather for his purpose. Consider Jonah for a second and the weather and the things that were involved in his life. And, and as they as they cast lots to see who was the one that was disobeying the Lord. Casting lots, a random thing, but it was of the Lord. It fell to Jonah. And off he was cast overboard. God had appointed all of those things to happen in Jonah's life, directing the weather and the wind and the rain and even the lots to accomplish his purpose And not only that, but later in Jonah's life, look at Jonah 4, verse 6 and 7. It's on your paper there. It says, now the Lord God appointed. Listen to how how scripture talks about God's actions. This is what God is doing. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. God did that. And he Mm -hmm. made it come up over Jonah. Jonah, God did it, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Again, God's hand, this wasn't just a random plant that sprouted up. It wasn't just a random worm. God did that. God appointed a plant would grow up and he appointed a worm. And he used these secondary causes to accomplish his purpose. It's amazing. Providence, to me, is, is so mind-boggling. It's even more amazing than when we see miracles being taken place. Even though miracles are so incredibly amazing, that God would even construct a universe that all these things would happen, and by His appointment. We see the plagues against Egypt, where God sent pestilence, and He sent weather, and severe weather, and frogs, and locusts, and all these things, and they, they infested Egypt, be it the land of Goshen was untouched, God can direct the weather in such a way that he could bring judgment to one part of a city and then nothing in another part of the city. Now, this is not just a special one-off for the plagues in Egypt. Consider Amos 4, 7. God speaking, I also withheld the rain from you. Okay, God did that. I withheld the rain from you. When there were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the, field, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. God did that. God chose to send rain on one field, but not on another. He has amazing control. He governs the weather, and he uses it for his own purposes. That's the second point. That God even, he directs all of creation for his intended ends, for his purposes. Number three, God directs even the random events. God directs even the random events, even the smallest detail. We saw like a plant, one little plant, one little worm directed, appointed, governed by the God of this universe. Seemingly random. Proverbs 16 and 33, we looked at this verse last week. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, almost like a, a dice being thrown here, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I can't think of anything more random than throwing a set of dice or casting a lot. It's complete, complete random. But yet it's every decision the scriptures say is from the Lord. Even the most random events you can think of, it's actually from the Lord. This next passage, 1 Kings 22, before we read that, I have to set this one up. King of Israel wanted to go out and to fight uh Syria who had come down and, and wanted to form an alliance with Judah and then go up there and fight against this king, and so he figured, Um, I'll let the king of Judah wear these royal vestments, and so that way they're gonna go after him, thinking he's the king of Israel, and all this dress like a regular soldier, no one's gonna know it's me. I'm gonna hang back and keep my eye on the battle and see what's going on. Alright? Now God had told them that if you do this, something disaster is going to be brought upon you. If you go to war, disaster will be brought upon you. We had a bunch of false prophets prophesying. Everything was good, but we had a true prophet of God saying disaster is going to be brought upon you. Now look what it says in 1 Kings twenty two thirty four. 34. But a certain man, okay, doesn't he get a name? Um, nothing, no title, no name. Is this a certain man drew his bow at random. All right, just a lucky shot. this complete random shot. And it struck the king of Israel... Where, on the armor? No, did it just miss him? No, it struck him between the scale armor and the breastplate. Direct hit, lucky blow, one shot, random. It's exactly what God said was going to happen. Even these random events ordained and ordered by the Lord. Therefore, he said to his driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And then he died. Random events orchestrated by the Lord. Also, in the book of Judges, we have Abimelech, you know, a tyrant. He wants to, to take control over. You know, he wanted to have the, the same kind of kingdom, uh, controlling this realm like Gideon. And so he decided he was going against his tower to see, lay siege against this tower. And God had promised to bring judgment to Abimelech. And look what happens in King, sorry, Judges nine fifty three. And a certain woman, again a nameless person, threw an upper millstone. From the top of this tower, and again another lucky shot hit Abimelech on the head and crushed his skull. Again, something that seemed r- random—like I- really, you hit Abimelech of all people that were down there. You threw this stone down and it hit him. Amazing! And this was ordered by the Lord. If you read later on the rest of that chapter, God it says God did this. This was this was the act of God. This was God bringing judgment against Abimelech. Even these random events are ordained and ordered by the Lord. He governs all creation. He exercises universal control for his own purpose. This is not some impersonal mechanism that is running this universe, and God has kind of left these laws to run on their own, and he's concerned about other things. No, he governs, he upholds every single thing in this universe. So we looked at God's effective control. We looked at a bit about God's universal control here tonight we're going to look at a, at the response to God's effective and universal control. We're going to take a, a moment here just to look at this response because there's really much more material to cover, but we're going to look at that in upcoming weeks. In upcoming weeks, we're going to look at how God upholds and directs all of human history. How he's guiding and directing and governing human history. Not just creation, not just the events of creation, not just these seemingly random events. He's going to govern and uphold and direct and move towards his attendant purpose human history. And not only that, we're going to see that God upholds every single human action in history. He's directing his salvation, sanctification, preservation. Every single human being, every single action is upheld by our sovereign, omnipotent God. That's what we're going to look at next time we get together. Not next week. Next week we're looking at um, that school policy thing. But when we come back here for this study, we're going to be looking at how God directs every single thing in this universe. What I'll do tonight with the the few minutes I have left is look at what this should really drive us to as we consider God's upholding of this universe and of his creation. Okay, four things to look at. First of all, this teaching is foundational. This teaching that God governs and upholds all things is foundational. I've stated before the centerpiece of Reformed theology is the doctrine of Scripture. And as we look at Scripture, we see God is the creator and that He is the sustainer, the upholder, that He is that He is Lord over all. And what that means is that God exercises supreme authority over every single thing. This is laying us a firm foundation for understanding Jesus Christ. It's laying for us a firm foundation for understanding the gospel, how God it is, how, how, who He is for a God who saves and who acts in history and in time and space to accomplish His purposes. Everything is under His complete control. This is our God. We look at creation. We, we can see in creation and we can we can, we can wonder and fathom at just how big our God is and how great He is. Okay, we, we understand that. But even even more than that, as we look at his creation, understand that he is upholding every single thing. That's even more amazing. It's incredible to consider. This is our God who upholds his universe. At the same time that this teaching is foundational, we realize how great our God is. It leads us to the second point because it makes us seem small, weak, and less powerful. This teaching puts man in his place. Number two, this teaching puts man in his place. When we consider how great God is, and how he's spoken this world into existence, and how he uphold, upholds this universe by the word of his power, it puts us in our proper spot. Scripture calls us dust. We are dust. Look at Genesis 319. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return there's a few other passages in scripture that mentions that exact same thing that we are just dust now immediately we have an objection how can that be we're, we're people we're, we're humanity we're important I have I have value and I have worth okay we're not we're not worthy and valuable in and of ourselves we're dust we're, we're carbon molecules. You know, the same thing that everything else is made of, and it's arranged in a different fashion. Okay, there's nothing intrinsic about us that gives us value and worth, but rather we're worthy and we're valuable because God, who has created all things and sustains all things, gives us worth by loving us, by giving us dominion, by redeeming us from our sins. We have worth and value because we're created in God's image. We reflect His glory, that's why we have worth. Not intrinsic, not in and of ourselves. Listen to what Abraham says in Genesis eighteen twenty seven. Abraham answered to God and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, I who am but dust and ashes. Scripture tells even the kings are dust. Psalm 103, 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust dust as for man his days are like grass he flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more we're dust we're grass we're vapor we're here for a time and then we vanish away this is this is who we are we are creatures there's the potter and there's the clay. There's a great distinction between God being the creator and us being the creature. It puts us in our place. Our society today, in its wisdom, desires to, to take that creator-creature distinction and just flip it like this, where we're now the ones on top, where we're the ones who set the rule, where we define morality, where we define reality. It's not true at all. We're creatures. We're dust. The wonder of it all is not that how special we are, but that God would care for us. This is what it says in Psalm 8, Psalm 8, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, when I, when I fathom God as being the creator, verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. God has bestowed upon us as mere mortals, as dust, as passing grass, privileges. He has loved us. He has made us in his image. He has given us a dominion Exercise authority over his creation to rule it and to subdue it for his glory, for his purpose as stewards. It's amazing. And we know this passage in Psalm 8 not only speaks to us as children of God, as people created by God, but it speaks about our Lord Jesus Christ ultimately being the Son of God. And not only that, God is so great in his love for us is that he promises to change us from this image of dust into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Look at this. We, we saw a bunch of scriptures talking about how we are dust and what is God that he is mindful of us. Now look at 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 47. This is so great. It says, The first man, talking about Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. Okay, there's the image we're from, image of Adam from dust. The second man, talking about the second Adam, Jesus Christ, is from heaven. And then verse 48. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Isn't that marvelous? Not only does God have this great distinction between who he is as the creator and who we are as the creature, we're just dust. But yet God has bestowed upon us his love and his mercy. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us. And now rather being returned back to this pile of dust, nothingness that we came from, rather we're going to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, into his likeness, the eternal son of God. Amazing. And all because of God's work, not because of our intrinsic worth or value. So this teaching puts us in our place. The third thing this teaching does is put man's wisdom in its place. This teaching puts man's wisdom in its place. This one we're not going to talk about much tonight because we addressed it a bit last week and we'll address it to come. This whole idea how can we how can we be responsible? If God controls every single thing in this universe for his own purposes, how can we we be responsible? How can we be free? How can God truly love? How can we truly love God? How can we not be robots? How can fatalism not be true? If we fail to understand this truth, the wisdom of God as revealed in Scripture, it's going to cause us to stumble upon other biblical truths. I was just reading this week about a man who believed the Scriptures and that yet being confronted with philosophical objections about free will, And about responsibility. Abandon the scriptures. In order to embrace man's wisdom. About freedom. And about responsibility. About philosophy. It's terrible. We need to continue to go to God's word. Because God's wisdom is going to thwart the wisdom of the wise. And so this teaching really puts man's wisdom in its place. Now we will address these objections. We'll come back uh, next time we look at this topic to address it. But really, I want to finish going through the biblical data before we look at these objections. The fourth thing we're going to look at here tonight, last thing. This teaching invokes reverent worship. This teaching invokes reverent worship. When God makes himself known to us, it is so that we would worship him. So that we would see him in his mercy. We would see him in his love. We would see him in his power and in his majesty, in his authority, in his lordship, in his, in his complete splendor. And then return that to him in adoration and praise and wonder and bewilderment. That's what these texts are supposed to evoke in us when we consider God's absolute control over every single detail of his universe. Wow! That is our God. That is our God. Amazing. It should bring a song to our lips. A song to our heart. It should bring us and invoke us to worship. I think this is why holiness is such a neglected topic in our churches today. And why the worship wars have been able to, to set so many churches off, off track. Talking about worship styles and preferences of music. Why have we lost these things? Why are we arguing about music? Why aren't, we, why aren't we active about holiness? Why don't we care about holiness anymore? I think it's because we've lost what it means to be sitting and to be wowed by who God is. And just his awesomeness and just his majesty and just his bigness and his greatness. Such that we revere him, such that we fear him. Such that we're, we're completely awestruck by his power. When we see the winds and the rains, we're not thinking science. We're thinking that's God. Amazing. Yes, he uses science. And we love science. And yet, that is our God. It's not impersonal. That's meant to invoke in us worship. God is God. So let's marvel and let's worship him. Let's finish here tonight and let's pray.